Welcome to Kana Stories, a program by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. My name is Luz Maria Frias, and I am happily enjoying life, uh, living life to its fullest without any constraints. I'm going to turn it over then to my peers. And I'm Don Eubanks, a member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians, an associate of Dendrils Group. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. And I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and partner at the Dendros Group. We have a really special guest today to close us off and, and get our Black History Month really um, synthesized in a way that I think is going to be really valuable. As our listeners know, we've been taking an, an acid-based approach uh, to our celebration of Black History Month, and we have an incredible guest and dear friend of ours, um, James Burroughs. I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce yourself, my friend. Well, Luz, thanks for having me. I appreciate being here, and thanks, uh, Don, Anthony, and Holly for meet, uh, meeting with me and uh, making me part of the family. So glad to be here. I'm James Burroughs. Uh, Senior Vice President of Community Engagement and Government Relations at Children's Minnesota, where I also serve as the Chief Equity Inclusion Officer. And more importantly, I'm the father of Teresa Ann Burroughs, an 11-year-old sixth grader who I love to death, and she loves me, so everything is always good for me. So thanks, and glad to be here today. So James, you know, you introduce yourself in terms of your title um, and so forth, and, and there's so many routes that we can take this conversation. As I said, you know, we, we've really been focusing on the acid-based approach. Let's start with all the incredible things that you're doing in your role. Uh, and then we also want to go down in terms of the role that you've played with the Minnesota Business Coalition. Uh, and then I want to talk to you. We all want to hear uh, about this post that you had on LinkedIn about the simple, practical ways to celebrate Black History Month that I think we all agree that it shouldn't be limited to only February. You know, that is, these are suggestions that should be carried on throughout the year. So let's start with your role at uh, Children's and talk about some of the big changes that through your leadership have come about. I know I've been following you on social media and it's been really impressed um, to see the, the various initiatives that you're leading there along with the team. I appreciate the compliment and the work we're doing here at Children's is unfinished. So let me say that first and foremost, we have a lot of work to still do, but we are proud of what we've done in the five years that I've been here. So my role as Chief Equity Inclusion Officer, what we've been able to do there and our focus has always been to reflect uh, an organization where our employees uh, look like our patients and family population. Uh, about 41% of our patients and families are patients and families of color. Um, and at the time that I got here, only about 19% of our employees were employees of color. And what we wanted to say was, you know what, in communities that we serve, it's important for us to go out, recruit from there, make sure we have people who can have access to jobs here, well-paying jobs, and also to invest in community and community partnerships and also through vendor supplier diversity relationships. So hiring Retention is the main thing that we wanted to do, along with investing in the community and also through vendor relationships. Uh, on that front, some of the things we did last year, 56% of all of our new hires, which we had 1,400 of them, were people of color. Uh, and that's a significant increase. Over the last five years, we started out with 19% people of color as our employment population. Now we're at 29 
think it's 29.6%, somewhere around up, we're at 30%. Um, we started off with 0% of our uh, executive CEO suite team being people of color, and 33% of that group now, there, there are nine of us who report to our CEO, 33% of that group are, are people of color as well. Uh, along the other fronts on the community side, we started a group called the Collective for Community Health, which is focused on representation from communities that we represent and serve. And Lauren Gilchrist um, is the senior director for that. She's done a great job of bringing together our Native community, our Latino community, our Black community, and our Asian community all at the table to say, how do we do better in community? And as part of that, we're going to give out $500,000 in grants to organizations to help us address health equity. And those grants will go to community organizations doing work with us uh, in that space and place. We started when I got here, an internship program that started off with eight interns of color. Now every year we hire 25 interns of color from high school all the way up through college in partnering with Achieve Twin Cities, uh, Right Track, uh, the Doherty Family College at St. Thomas, uh, the Wallen Foundation, and other organizations to make sure that we have a pipeline in the future and also access uh, to the future as well. 30% um, of all of our construction contracts, we have a lot of buildings that we own and we have a lot of construction that takes place. 30% of all of those go to people of color and women and uh, through our subcontracting agreement. So if you have a general contractor business, you bid on something in order for you to get the contract well with us, you have to guarantee that 30% of that, 20% of people of color, 10% go to women as well. So I'll stop there, Luce, but we're doing a lot of great things in that space. And we're also addressing health equity by closing some of those disparities. We showed up at the legislature last year and helped pass the Crown Act. Our CEO testified on behalf of passing the Crown Act. We also helped um, pass the uh, free lunch legislation uh, as well, because food security is a challenge for all of our patients and families as well. So we've done a lot of good stuff, and I'm proud of the work we've done, and we have a lot more to do. Amazing. Clearly, what you are showing us and showing community and all of our listeners and the business community is that this can be done, right? That this is within our reach, and it it it's when there's a will, there's a way right, to get it done. You know, folks will begin to make excuses and begin to uh, get in this paralysis analysis uh, that I think so often we find ourselves, particularly in Minnesota, where people keep looking at these disparities and say that they don't know what to do, or they look at the numbers and then they go back and kind of wring their hands. And then a few years later, they got to look at the numbers again and update the numbers. And it's, it's a cycle, right, of, of inaction. So that's why I call it analysis paralysis. But um, so proud of you, my friend. You know, I've known you for, what, 30 years? And doesn't surprise me that, that you are excelling in this role and, and showing through your visionary leadership um, what can be done. Well, thank you so much, Luz. And, and we have known each other since we were 10. So that's 30 years. So we're, uh, we're, we're going to count I'll us as 40 that. now. There we go. I'll <laughs> so, take that. So yeah, I, I, I'm excited about it. And you make a great point. If you're intentional about this work and you're committed to doing it, it's not that hard. Um, when people tell me at the time, I can't find anybody of color to interview for a job or I can't find a business of color, 
even more now than ever, they have uh, guides for suppliers of color, Black, Latino, Asian, Native. They have LGBTQ guides for suppliers. Um, we have a lot of people that you should know in the community if you get out in the community. Uh, I always joke with people when they talk about starting a community organization or community partnership. Uh, I laugh because I say to folks, before I even start a partnership, I know the people from being in community the last 30 years. Like, I don't go into community news saying, hey, I'm introducing myself. They're like, oh, James, good to see you. Welcome back. You know, And that's my thing that's important. If you have those relationships, this is not hard work to do, but you have to be intentional and you have to measure it as well. And I want to be clear on, on the things I talked about earlier. We have goals every year that we measure against. So every month we look at how many uh, hires that we had and we re uh, look at our disaggregated race data about who we hired as well. Now, we don't hire people because of their race. We make sure we're intentional about opening up the places we interview and talk to people. And we make sure every month that we measure that. And when we're not hitting our goals, we go back and say, what can we do differently as well? Who can we partner with? Uh, and what we've learned is when you do things like that, what gets measured gets done is what my old boss, uh, Governor Dayton, used to say all the time. So we make sure we measure it. We get it done. If we're not doing it, we go back and look at the gaps and figure out what we can do better. How how does this uh yeah I love this right the hiring the retention is always a big issue I think this isn't the first time we've talked about retention especially transplants um, who come to Minnesota for work how does all of this affect the patient though right as we we talk about this especially you said forty forty one percent of your patients are patients of color um, so how are all these benefits you know. From the high level to the, the lowest paying job, how is that benefiting the patients that are coming in? And that's a great question. Uh, well, let me first hit on retention. One of the things we need to do a better job on is in retention because our turnover rate for our Black, Latino, Asian, and Native employees is still much higher than our white employees. So this year we're focused mostly on inclusive leadership and retaining those great folks that we've been able to bring to uh, our organization. I can talk a little bit about more how we're doing that later. But affecting the patient, that's a great question. What we've heard from our patients and families and also what the literature, the medical literature tells us is when people who look like our patients and families serve them, they're better health outcomes. There's a piece that Dr. Rachel Hardeman did, who's at the University of Minnesota, and some other colleagues about when Black patients receive care from Black physicians, Black nurses, Black medical assistants, they had a higher health outcome, a better health outcome than they did with uh, their white uh, counterparts. Now, that doesn't mean to say that anybody white was doing anything intentional to not serve that particular patient. But when you have somebody from your particular race, ethnicity, you have somebody from your particular culture, you have somebody who understands your norms and those kind of things as well, patient care gets much better. Um, when we talk to people about language, you can have an interpreter understands the language, but if you don't understand the culture, you might not understand why there's differences in the Hmong culture and there's differences in the African Liberian culture and there's differences in um, our, you know, Colombian and Dominican uh, brothers and sisters as well. When you understand that, you provide that service and people begin to trust you more. Uh, they begin to come back more. One of the things that it's a high disparity in is vaccines or what we call combo vaccines. And combo vaccines means you get a vaccine as an early kid age and you come back before the age of two to get your next one. 
well, if I don't have a relationship and I don't trust you, I'm going to get that first vaccine and you're not going to see me anymore. And that's typically happens with our patients and families of color unless there's a provider that's connected to them some in some race, ethnicity way or culture way as well. So the reason we do it is patient care. The reason we, we uh, want to uh, address the disparity in hiring is because it leads to better patient care as well. And that's documented that it gets better patient care if you have those uh, a more diverse workforce. I can speak to it, you know, directly. Our experience in the NICU with um, two very high risk, you know, we had two very high risk pregnancies. Both of my children were born um, early and they had all these different outcomes. And I, I, I remember following my daughter when she was born at 24 weeks, that which at that time was kind of on the front end of viability uh, for, for birth. And we were just in the midst of it. The NICU at Children's, let me say, let me say this. Um, the fact that there was a black nurse immediately who not just who not just connected culturally in terms of lingo and could could sense where our anxieties were. Everybody was trying to address our anxieties, but she was able to kind of clock it in a way that said the right things at the right times, put, you know, translated when there needed to be translation and then stuck with our child throughout because you, you can, you know, get a primary uh, nurse for your for your case in the NICU. And and just the attentiveness that I was already seeing in terms of the, um, I don't know, the cultural skill work of just of the nurses and the practitioners made a huge difference. Um, when we were in the throes of it, right, a white nurse practitioner said, hey, let me tell you about the outcomes for children of color who are born early. And there's a racialized outcome, uh, black, brown, indigenous uh, children born early do better than their white counterparts. And of course, girls do way better than there's a gap and then there's the boys. But they, so there's a yeah. gendered thing as well. But she, by nature of the nurse clocking it, having some conversation, getting a sensor to know who we were, they they knew that we were one, some who this data was going to help calm our anxiety. That is that a, that's that like a culture of space that a, that a, a culturally minded and equity minded group who's had that conversation before comes up with. And I just got to hand it to you. Like, like our experiences have been powerful as it relates to the intentionality there. Even had, um, we were at Children's for another issue that we were having. And one of the texts was, as they were putting some brain leads on, on, on my daughter, was singing the song, one little, two little, three little. And, and I was like, this cat is not about to say Indians, right? Mm -hmm. And he did, but before I could open my mouth to be like, oh, hold up, right? In the midst of like trying to figure out what's going on with my daughter, there was somebody else already on staff who was like, hold up, wait a minute. No, 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 we're not gonna do that. Uh, we'll, we'll be right back. And I now we're at the door trying to listen to what's happening. Mm -hmm. And they had this skill set to to an engagement to like process that, deal with that, come back and talk to us about it and like handled it. And we didn't have to do any work. It was refreshing. So I just had to I had to love mm -hmm. on the culture that I'm that I have experienced at Children's just to put that out there for you. Well, I'm so, so glad to hear that. And I'm so glad to hear that they work together as a team, because I want to be mm -hmm. clear. Uh, we are a system like other healthcare systems mm -hmm. that actively practice systemic racism. That you walk part. into you walk <laughs> into children's. We actively practice systemic racism. Do I want to do it? Nope. But does it happen? Absolutely. But when it happens, how we handle it, how we have those conversations, how we discuss getting better is the the piece I want to harp on. I'm glad to hear you got that 
that kind of coverage. You got that kind of honesty and recovery is what we call it, you know, patient recovery from those situations that could have turned worse as well. So glad to hear that, Anthony. So I, I mentioned this, I think, to the, our, our, our counter stories family, but I, I'm expecting a lot of babies this year in my family. Bring I'm expecting... them all to Children's Minnesota. <laughs> uh, we, we got one in, we got one in, we got one in uh, May, one in June, one in July, one in August. So like oh, wow. month after month after month. Okay. And, and one of the things that um, my cousins and my siblings who are expecting or looking at is, um, you know, some places offer the uh, chicken diet for Hmong mothers, right? And, um, okay, so my other sisters who have had children were advising them, go to the places that have it because, you know, it means that they recognize you. It means that they recognize <laughs> us and that they, you know, but it's terrible and you don't want it. And mom's going to bring you better stuff anyway. But just the the concept of just them having it in of itself was is such a big thing, even though it's bland and we don't want to eat it. But just having it is such a great thing. And so I think mm -hmm. that's just, you know, throwing that out there is one of those impacts of like offering th those sorts of cultural things to your patients, make them feel more welcomed and more comfortable. Now, I'm going to say that's great. But I'm going to say we got to do better in this sense. So if it is bland and it is bad, uh, as a healthcare institution, there are probably like a zillion Hmong restaurants that I'm aware of that we could probably partner with our cafeteria and say, you know what, we're going to start to purchase goods and services from you of your high quality food that your you know, community already loves. And let's figure out a way that we can make that part of our service delivery. So our cafeteria is now providing the high quality seasoned, well-liked food uh, that you want as opposed to our attempt at doing it. And that's something we got to get better at. And we're not there yet, but we try to do more of that as well. Like if we can't do it well, let's partner with the community and then walk them through our processes. Cause it's not as easy as just buying the food and put it in there. They have to go through our vendor process, walk them through how that works, insurance piece of it. But I'd rather do that because that also then invests in the community that they come from as well. So that restaurant is going to get more revenue from us because they're partnering in the long term. So that's what I would love to see more of to your to add on to your story. I, I mean, I'm sure that. my mom would be happy to come in there a few days a week and cook for you guys. <laughs> or teach or you know, like teach y'all how to do it there too, right? There you go. Boom, there you go. <laughs> you get to the root of it. <laughs> I love it. I love at it. Least, at least you gotta get you and your sisters in there making some of those uh um Egg rolls. The egg rolls we made last time. <laughs> oh my God! Yes. I see. Now you gotta be hungry over here. <laughs> so you know, I'm. I, I was trying to think back to. I have a son, um, and I have a daughter. I was trying to think back where they were born, and they were both born in the same spot. We're children's. We take care of the babies. We don't birth the babies. So it's got, got it. either birth at United or birth at Alina uh, or Abbott over here in South Minneapolis, or we take care of the kiddos right away. So they go to the NICU, the PICU, and get ready after that. But then do they, don't they have a, uh, does, did children's have a pediatric place right located in that complex right there? We do because we have what's called a mother baby center, which is a partnership between the two hospital systems. So their physicians birth them. Our pediatricians are right there as well. 
I've seen children's um, locations my entire life because I'm originally from Minneapolis, you know, lifelong okay. Twin City resident. Um, but when I think back even where I was born, I was born um, in General Hospital before it turned into uh, Hennepin County Medical Center. But, you know, you were talking about, you know, uh, your ability to hire more diverse um uh, providers. And yeah, I'm just thinking of my own experience. Um, a doctor I'd been seeing for years retired. And about a year and a half ago, I had to find a new physician. And I, uh, the limited number of physicians of color were already full with the exception of a few. And I ended up with a young Hmong doctor, and I've met with him at least two or three times. And the experience I have had with this young man has, for the first time in my life, it's I'm not saying like I enjoy going to the doctor, but I don't mind going to see this young man because he takes the time I feel listened to for the very first time in my life. I feel there's someone who's actually listening to what I'm saying. And then we have a conversation about my health and this, that, and the other. And so for the first time, I feel like I'm actually taking part in, in what's happening. And, and I, it just blows me away. I mean, this young man has got to be half my age. And so, but, uh, you know, and just probably starting in his practice and really beginning to build up, but that connection, and even though he's Hmong and I'm native and black, you know, there's just that connection and he takes that extra time and it's made a huge impact, um, in my healthcare delivery personally. And so I, you know, I, I, um, I guess I just want to comment on what you were saying because it is true. There is a difference. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that um there was anything wrong with my provider before, but we didn't have that kind of connection. And so the the very thing you're talking about, I can attest to. It does make a difference and it's fantastic. So glad to hear that story. It's one of the things that I tell people is when you're listened to and you feel heard, you said nobody wants to go to the doctor, but you don't mind going to somebody that you know is hearing what you want to say. And also too valuing your thoughts, your opinions as well. And that's so important. And I love that it was cross-cultural in the sense that I tell people all the time, it doesn't have to be the race matches the race. It's sometimes just listening to and hearing as well. And I tell people all the time, you can be a white doctor and do just as good as listening, paying attention to, you know, cultural understanding as well. So um, thank you, Donald, for, for that, that, that comment. It really means a lot. James, you know, following up on that comment, we, we've seen and, and read, I know, this crew and, and our audience uh, pieces about how as patients, particularly Black patients, feel dismissed, you know, when they go to the physician. And so being listened to is, is, is a great uh, way to get around that. But the other part that I think we should highlight is the medical community had historically been trained in medical school 
that Blacks have a higher tolerance for pain. Uh, so I'm going to invite you to step into that space and, and talk to us about that, but also some other uh, myths, you know, that exist in the medical profession that have been uh, harmful to our Black population, but also our other populations mm. of color and our Indigenous populations. Uh, a great point, Luce. Um, that is one of them. And although sometimes that even isn't being taught, it's been so more of a, a understanding that it, uh, that people believe and medical students believe that there's a higher tolerance for pain uh, in the Black community, uh, especially uh, amongst kids and families. Some of the other biases are, let's say that uh, you have a, a Native or a Black mom or Latino mom, and sometimes, if you know, our moms can raise their voice. They can get bold. They can get, you know, and they're not upset. They just make sure that everybody understands and clearly hear Sometimes in settings in healthcare, the automatic thing that says, oh, the mom is angry. Oh, the mom is getting volatile. Do we need to call a, a security person to come up and address the family because that mom is getting upset. Same with our our, our black and brown fathers. Um, when I got here, we had these things called, um, what were they called? We don't use them anymore, but they were essentially functioned as um, behavior agreements. Meaning, if I got too loud in the room or that kind of thing, they put me on, oh, behavior contracts. They put me on a behavior contract. They said, hey, James, you got too loud get loud again, we're going to have to put you on a code yellow and you can't come into the room with, you know, your wife next time. You got to stay outside or we got to monitor your behavior. As opposed to, I'm not yelling or screaming. I just want to be heard and my voice to be heard. And as opposed to accepting me for who I am and not being disrespectful, not cursing, not yelling. So we got rid of those behavior contracts. And what we decided was, how do we teach and coach our nurses, our physicians around that communication style to realize that there are differences in the way people communicate. So, Luce, that's another way in which we've seen that show up uh, with our physicians and our nurses. Another way is, too, just the number of, um, of what family looks like. Sometimes we have limits on, you know, family coming to the room and people say, well, only the mom and dad can come to the room. Well, the family could be the mom, dad, the grandfather, the cousins, everybody else. It could be 10 deep. And rather than just say you can't come in, let's figure out a way to rotate the family through in order to address that all these folks are family together. So understanding the family dynamic and construct of family has also been different. One of the other things we try to do better at is religious preference. Uh, we have a spiritual care group that looks at the different uh, religions and we have a, a minister in you know different faiths and different religions. When we didn't have enough of that, we had somebody request a um, uh, treatment from a Native American healer. And because our staff wasn't understanding what that meant and what that looked like, they got um, nervous around what that meant, that to show up in the room and do the, the those things related to that healing. What we've learned is if we partner more with the community and understand what those things are, yeah, we may have to make some accommodations, not even accommodations, we may have to understand that people need different things culturally from a religious and a healing standpoint uh, as well. So those are some of the other things, Luce. Uh, and I, I don't want to blame it just on the medical profession. So you and I are both lawyers. Law didn't teach me anything about being inclusive 
uh, in law school. It taught me about the biases against people who look like me and the biases courts have against people who look like us uh, as well. So each of those systems, medical, law, business, all have their own biases too. But those are just some related to the, the medical field. I'm so glad you highlighted that and, and closing the loop on the pain, uh, the myth about Blacks having a higher pain tolerance, then that means from a practical standpoint, historically speaking, that uh, practitioners are less likely to uh, dispense medications for pain relief and allowing then that person or the families to suffer longer and deeper because of this myth. And, and so yeah. our communities then are at a greater risk, right, uh, to deteriorate quicker because they were not listened to or believed from the onset, yeah. right? And, and that's a perfect, a perfect example that you're right. And then they don't come back to healthcare because healthcare has treated them as somebody coming just to get drugs as opposed to pain relief. Mm -hmm. Um, my daughter has sickle cell disease, as some of you on this call may know, and she's been a poster child for that since she was born. Now that she's in her uh, adolescent age, when she gets to be older, it's different when you're a kid. It's easier to get pain medicine, and they say, okay, it's the pain zero to five, and give you the medicine. When you get to be an adult, and you say the same thing, and the pain even be more excruciating, people might not believe you, and they may think that, oh, you're just trying to get more drugs. And I've had too many adult Black and Latino patients say that to us and make sure that we need to treat each other better than we have been as far as that's concerned. And that's just not a children. That's any healthcare system that I've seen as well. So you're right. And the really bad thing about that is if healthcare treats you like that as a young adult, when you decide to have kids, do you want to bring your kid into the doctor or into the healthcare system? That answer is a resounding no. Or when your mom gets sick or your aunt gets sick, do you want to bring them into a doctor? That's a resounding no because of the way that you've been treated. Hey, James, I just wanted to comment on the scenario that you were pointing out in, in terms of uh, some of the older historical um, treatment that uh, families of color might experience in the setting, in a healthcare setting like that. Um, reminded me very much of, uh, I think, situations that our children go through in schools, because I can relate to that. I had a situation where my son was being um, was being tagged or pointed out for some for uh, some some behavioral things when he was in school that I, I had to have a discussion with with his, with his teacher um, about the differences between how young male young 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 kids of color are behaviors are pointed out about them that is explained off with young white males as oh they're just boys um but what i wanted to get back to i guess more to kind of highlight what you were talking about is in the social work program i taught at metropolitan state university we had a cultural competency piece interwoven in that program and um, I re I used to have this discussion with students or talk about this topic, and we were trying to get them, you know, there's no way that any one of us is going to be totally culturally competent in every other culture that we come across. But what we were trying to impress upon them 
is the importance of listening to the clients they're 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 um, working with, and realizing that there may be things in their own community that not only would make them feel better, but would but would um, um, bring in additional resources to help deal with whatever issues dealing with. So the way you described um, the healer, for instance, right? The, mm-hmm. the uh, Native American uh, healer, it's, it's just being open to the idea that there are, there are resources in those communities that could be brought in to help deal with those situations is is at least at that point or helping bridge those cultural differences. And it may not take anything more than that. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I know everything about the American Indian community, but it means that I'm willing to bring those resources and listen to the individuals I'm working with in order to try to figure this thing out. Mm-hmm. And and that was such a fantastic example of that happening in that situation. And I, I just needed to comment on that mm-hmm. because it, it's one thing that, to talk about in the classroom, but to hear it in practice is something different, even though you're not a social worker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thanks, Don. I, I appreciate that. And I'm not, I'm honoring it. I'm honoring it. And what, what I've changed, I've changed my language over the years too. And I know you have too. Uh, I used to talk about cultural proficiency, and then I thought about it. Nobody can be proficient in culture. Then I said, well, maybe, uh, what, what else do we say about it? You know, there's no cultural experts out there. There's no competency level. So I talk about cultural humility now. Humility to know that I don't know what I don't know, and that I'm comfortable asking questions and having uh, inquiry, appreciative inquiry, about learning uh, around that and from a humble standpoint uh, and not assuming my culture is any better. So we're trying to do more of that. And I'll be honest with you, we haven't done the best job in, in working with our Native American community, although we sit in the middle of the Phillips neighborhood. You know, so we've intentionally went out and got more community partners to say, how can we get better? We used to have a a moccasin program where we gave every Native American child a set of moccasins that were born at Children's. Uh, what happened was a young lady who used to work for me, um, Lisa, left the organization. And then my colleagues came to me and said, hey, are we going to hire somebody who's Native to do that program again? I said, well, we, we're going to hire somebody, but can you go out into the community and learn about the program too yourself from a cultural humility standpoint? Because I don't want it to be the burden of the person who's Black, Latino, Asian, or Native to always teaching everybody else about mm-hmm. their culture. So I tell uh, folks, you got to have more black friends than just James Burroughs. It can't be James is the black friend. <laughs> come on, come on, you better preach on that one. You know, but see, you got to have more uh, native friends than Don. Don's your only native friend. Black friend. That's right. It doesn't solve world peace there. So that's, that's right. important. Right. See, and again, you you touched on a subject that that often for many of us who have floated around in some of those places where where that frustration, that frustration where, where individuals like you or offices that are created to deal with these issues and help these organizations and institutions in that area, um, so often it falls on you or that office in that institution to do that work, but there's no learning anywhere else in that institution. 
And that's the frustrating part. And to hear you bring that up, is that something that I know there's, you've got so much on your plate and so much you're doing, but how are those institutions beginning to learn? I think it's a, and that's a, that's a big question. I mean, it's a great point, Don. Um, What I've tried to do differently. So when I went to the governor's office, governor Dayton, I did it all the wrong way, but I only had three years. So I said, oh, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to go in and try to fix it all myself. I'm going to put an S on my chest. I'm going to try to fix supplier diversity. We raised that by 1400%. We raised the hiring and we gained like three to 4% in a short period of time and raised the color, did it all. It became the James Burroughs, go ahead and fix it and find it. One, I was tired as heck after the end of that stuff. But then, two, it wasn't embedded in anybody. It was the James Burroughs thing. And when James left, I, I won't comment, but things got changed and were different under a different leadership. What I'm doing here that's much different, I'm not answering all the questions. I'm not giving you all the answers. I'll sit in the room and just be like, you know what? I don't know. What do you think we should do? We're doing inclusive leadership now with our leadership team here at Children's and being inclusive leaders. I tell them all the time, it doesn't, you have to be inclusive leader with all your employees, not just employees of color. You need to be inclusive leader starting that out. Part. So <laughs> I don't, I, what can I tell you? So I'm answering less questions, Don. I'm letting more people do the heavy lifting in the work. And I've looked at this more of an equity coaching model. So I'm going to coach you to ask the right questions, put yourself in a good situation, put you in the game. You're actually playing the game now as opposed to me playing everything for you, doing everything for you. So for me, that's done a couple of things. One is it teaches people to learn on their own. So when I'm gone from this role, the work can still continue. And then two, it takes a little bit of stress off of all the trying to do everything for everyone and, and make it perfect for them as well. So I encourage other leaders in this DEI space to do the same. You know, let other people do some of the heavy lifting. Let them make mistakes too. But it's okay to make mistakes because they'll learn from those and they'll learn like, oh, I didn't know about that that cultural uh, community. I didn't know about that uh, cultural, you know, from a culturally humble standpoint, asking that question. But now I know and now I can do things differently as well. One of the things just uh, one of the things I love that I'm, I'm, I'm hearing in and what you're connecting is not just the collectivism uh, approach, which speaks to many of our communities loose. You know, you talk about that all the time, right? And 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 what's home for our communities in that regard, but but then also the creative energy to create space for things to actually happen. I think that's huge because so much of our discourse doesn't carry with it the humility, and so we bind ourselves into semantic things. You know, this thing wasn't said, or, or it wasn't done in this particular way, and it short circuits the space that people need for for change to even be possible. Right. Or to think about something different that even be possible or to get out of that neuromuscular lock that, uh, the you know, fight or flight or quote unquote being wrong, you know, come comes in like you're it, what it sounds like is that there's a muscle that's being developed for the kind of, I don't know, real human acculturation that we need to actually be able to change knowledge, skill, will, capacity, practice, and all those things. So, mm -hmm. and I've heard you say the phrase cultural humility a few times. Like, what are some of those, what are some of those muscle growth areas that that y'all have been like real laser focused on of late to try to mm -hmm. keep growing that that muscle and those skills of the folks in the system? So one of, good question. So one of them is we do have these things called safety learning reports. 
Um, and safety is a big thing at a hospital system, of course. Those reports used to be just about physical safety, so about harm related to IVs or needles or things like that. But we also said it from a patient standpoint, how is your safety or being impacted by the interaction you have with our staff? How do you feel about that interaction as a, a staff member and a patient or family? So we're learning from those stories that the story you mentioned before about the sometimes the, 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 the story is told or the rhyme is told and nobody corrects it. So that could go into a safety learning report, comes back to us either anonymously or individual. And then we look at it collectively as a team for our health equity team that we have and say, how do we get better around this? So it's allowing people to hear the good, the bad, and the things that are not going so well for us, collectively take it in. And then how do we address that collectively for solutions as well? Another thing we're, we're trying to do more of is, uh, when I say allow people to make mistakes, you know, um, to view how you interact with your employees. And if you have a high attrition rate from boys of color, what, what are things going on? What are things you can do differently? How do you talk to, we have uh, eight employee research groups here. Um, the traditional ones, Black, Latino, Latino, Native, our Pride group uh, as well, Asian group as well, our Veterans group. We're asking them, ask our employees, what can we do better to retain them? What can we do better to have an educated conversation, not educated, a, a culturally humble conversation with them about we can change the culture here to get better as well. So it's more of an inquisitive nature, Anthony, is what we're encouraging. Um, I'm intentionally having less guardrails than I've ever used to have. I used to do diversity training for a long time. I would go in, people would, you know, get their diversity book, and I'd after six hours, they'd be like, James, you're amazing. That was great. I'm going to give you fives, and it's great. And I was like, I go out there feeling good. Like, yeah, I got fives. And went to that client, they all happy. And I'm like, but did I change anything? Or did I just say they got they got a black man that came in there. They were happy. He he made them laugh. And I learned some stuff. Box they put checked. a book on the shelf. <laughs> exactly. So the less questions that I answer, the more direction, the, the less direction I give. And I want you to problem solve on your own. And like I said, I really want to force you to do things differently. One of the things I didn't mention that we've done a good job over here in the last five years is we've recruited a lot more diverse, racially diverse board members. Uh, so we have a lot of folks from Black, Latino, Asian, Native um, board members that we didn't have before. So those board members are sitting with other board members talking about how we can end up and do things better uh, as well. And how do we change systems? One of our board members last year invited the other board members to go over to Frogtown and experience that culture, the Hmong culture, and spending a half day over there with the shop owners, with the restaurants as well. We had about four or five staff members and eight, eight to 12 board members go over there as well. And we're going to do more of that. So that's another thing, changing the system, getting the board members who we report to, to understand the importance of that. And one thing I'd be remiss if I didn't mention we do a lot of this good work, but it's also built into our strategic plan. So we're measured by the strategic plan. We're rewarded by the strategic plan. Our board holds us accountable. So everybody's on the same page. It's like, we don't do this well. We don't get paid. <laughs> we don't. Uh, our board members don't keep us on for much longer because they're like, okay, this is where you get evaluated. And that's the important piece that I forgot to mention because that has to be built into the system. It can't be an add-on uh, as well. So I'm, I'm excited what we're doing. 
But by no means, we're not where we need to be yet. So I don't want anybody to say that Damn, children's is there. No, we're not. We're trying to get there and we're trying to get even better uh, as well. So anything we, you know, recommendations or things you hear, please let us know uh, how we can get better. And I, I'd love to hear from community as well. Like if you hear this show, call us. If you have a bad experience, a good experience, a mediocre experience, call us. Let us know. We want to get better by learning from each other. That's awesome. You know, it's about getting to the mountaintop and, and aspiring there, but there's, in my mind, there's no end point because we could always improve and we could always grow, right? As, mm -hmm. as people, as communities, as a system. Uh, I'm going to take us a little bit different because I want to make sure that we also highlight the work that you're doing as a leader with the B Minnesota Business Coalition. I, I think I may not be saying it fully, right? The, the full name. Remind me, correct me, you know, because I'm not saying it correctly. Uh, but then also describe those efforts and uh, the incredible work and the, uh, the strategies that are being implemented as a result of that. Sure. And it's the, the Minnesota Business Coalition for Racial Equity and affectionately known as MBCRE. Uh, and it was started um, right after May 25th, 2020, uh, when George Floyd was murdered. Uh, and I have to give credit, James Moman, who at the time was working at General Mills and Diversity and Inclusion, called myself and other colleagues and said, we got to do something different um, because we just saw a Black man murder on national TV and we are not doing enough that we need to do in Minnesota or nationally around this. So about eight to 10 of us got together and we say, you know what, we gotta focus on strategies particular for a particular community. And we said, this needs to be a black focused strategy. And this strategy needs to look at um, three main things, well, four main things. One is how are we gathering or getting philanthropy involved in our community to make sure that it's targeted for solutions that we need. Sometimes philanthropy has a big brush and they'll say, we're going to address the issues for people of color. And last time I checked, Black issues may be different from Hmong issues, they may be different from Native issues, different from Latino issues. And within each of those categories, you already know that there's subsets of uh, ethnicities in those categories too. But we said, from a Black standpoint, what does philanthropy have to look differently? We also said from an employment standpoint, are we hiring and retaining and developing and promoting Black people in these corporations? The answer was no. The answer was we're not doing enough fast enough. So how do we develop strategies from that? And these corporations that came together, we said now we want to collectively address those issues. So philanthropy is one. Employment was another. Another was um, business and economic development. How are we promoting Black um, businesses and investing in uh, black businesses going forward. And then the last one was, and one of the most important was, how do we look at public safety differently so we won't have another um, uh, person who has a knee on their neck for nine minutes and 39 seconds? We don't have another George Floyd. Uh, so we were advocates around public safety and changing the way policing looked, changing the way that accountability looked as well. So we started that with about 60 different companies coming together. Literally, the steering committee came together every Friday for two years in a row and said, how do we put this together? So we had different subgroups, those categories I mentioned, to make sure that we're doing things differently. Um, and then fast forward to now, we have a managing director 
and she's an amazing woman named Tiffany Daniels who leads this work. And she is, uh, we have three prongs now that we focus on. One is uh, advocacy and public safety. So not only advocacy for public safety things, but we also help pass things like the Crown Act last year. And the Crown Act would help support those who want to wear natural hair to work in other places, not be discriminated against as well. Um, the other area is uh, employment, making sure that we hire and retain and promote Black employees. And we've also partnered with an organization called The Partnership based out of Boston. And that organization helps develop Black employees as well. And the last piece is we focus on investing in new businesses, Black-owned businesses. So we actually uh, helped uh, First Independence Bank, which was the first Black-owned bank open in Minnesota. They had a campaign to raise a million dollars over a certain period of time. NBC Aries Partnership helped them raise $3 million in investments over that same period of time. They've also, we've also helped uh, Turn Signal, which is a Black-owned company started by three um, African-American men that said, you know what, if somebody gets stopped, whether it be for police or an accident, you can have a lawyer, you push the button, you have a lawyer right there for you, helps negotiate the, the public safety stop and or accident and gives you advice on that. Uh, we invested in that and partnered with different companies like Children's, and we're basically providing that as a benefit to our employees as well. So NBC is doing a lot of great things. Tiffany's done a lot of great work. Uh, I will say this, the opportunity remains that we cannot say that um, four years ago is enough time by which we've solved world peace for Black people in Minnesota. So George Floyd happened, and I will say that the, the energy is waning among some companies to say, you know what? We had a Supreme Court decision that said you can't use race in bringing people into higher education. I'm going to extrapolate from that. It means, yeah, this stuff is over, so we don't really need to identify things for Black people in employment, in business development, in public safety, or, or advocacy. Um, NBC RE is positioned to not let that happen. We're recruiting companies as we speak. We're curating those kind of partnerships, and we're creating a lot of uh, advocacy around this. We were just, uh, Tiffany, myself, and um, another Courtney Shorter from General Mills just had a panel with the Vikings last week talking about the need for racial equity and the need for NBCRE as well. And I think she has another presentation coming up soon to talk about um, Blacks being invited to boards of directors, paid boards of director positions as well is something we're, we're looking at. So I know that's a mouthful, loose, but that's what NBCRE is doing. And it's a great organization, uh, www.mbcre.org. Uh, you can learn much more about it uh, as well. And it, it was a grassroots start. And I will say this. Uh, it wasn't easy to do because we had at the table not only uh, like-minded folks around equity and inclusion, we also had folks that were from the Minnesota Business Partnership. We had folks that were from um, Greater MSP uh, and folks that maybe not as focused as we wanted to be on racial equity or on identifying a particular community, but we kept meeting, kept coming to ideas that could work for everybody at the table and getting better as well. Very impressive, uh, and I have no doubt that you'll continue to um, go down paths that are really enlightening for um, our community, but more importantly, get to the systems of what is driving all of these disparities, but also these injustices that are occurring in our community. Well, James, let's, let's go down this path then. You had posted a list on LinkedIn 
with some really practical, I thought, sensible and, and within reach suggestions of how folks across community uh, can really contribute towards and and be um, you you know just participatory in Black History Month. Meaning, it's not about just tweeting something. You know, being what I've read uh, are called slacktivists. You know, where uh, by tweeting something or posting on social media, you believe that I you, like that. <laughs> <laughs> you believe that you've done something towards Black History Month. What are some of the more proactive things, measures that all of us, right, uh, can engage in, not only during Black History Month, but every day of the year? So I'm going to turn it over to you, James, uh, to go down that list and uh, edify us all. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share the list. The, the first one is simple. Um, Black History Month typically has 28 days. This year we have 29. But really, it can have 365. And what does that mean? It can mean that you could spend money with Black-owned businesses for 365 days throughout the year. You know, you pick the business. It could be restaurants. It could be a consumer product. It could be a car dealership, whatever it is. But be intentional about where you spend your money is the first thing. Uh, and that's important because that will not only help that business, it'll help community as well. Uh, the other thing is um, increase the number of people in leadership at your organizations who are Black. You know, board members. I said before, we increased our board members and people of color, and we intentionally increased our Black board members as well to get different perspectives at the table. Those are the leaders of your organizations. So making sure you have board members there uh, that are uh, racially diverse. The next one was Black leadership. So as I said before, when I started five years ago, zero people of color were in leadership in the C-suite at Children's. Now, 33% of those positions are filled by people of color, and they actually 33% happen to be Black as well um, in, that, in those leadership roles. And that's intentional that because as your organization has those folks at the table, you then can set the table for many different people to come to the table because they're at the table helping to build it as opposed to being invited later on uh, as well. Another thing, sponsoring uh, an event um, you know, for high-potential Black leaders. I mentioned an organization called, earlier called The Partnership. They look at high potential Black leaders in different companies, and they say you pay a, a nominal fee, I think it's like 15 grand, and then they will take the group through like, a, I think it's a 10-month program about developing their leadership skills so they can help get to the next level of leadership. Do something like that because you can't just say that I can't find anybody, or if you do find somebody, you don't develop them and promote them because you have to invest in their growth and development as well. Uh, reminds me of, you know, law firms back in the day, Lou. So I'll, I'll let it go. It's like you could hire a whole number of lawyers of color, but they wouldn't give us any work. They wouldn't develop us and mentor us. And they'd say, well, you know what? James can't make it or cut it. But uh, James could if you gave him the opportunity to invest in. So that's another one. And then the last one I had here, or two of the last ones is, um, you know, supporting Black community organizations through sponsorship. Um, you know, it could be just simply uh, sponsoring the Urban League celebration, sponsoring WACP, buying a table at an NBCRE event as well. And then also, to increasing your spending with Black media. Um, one of the things that we talked about earlier was nobody can tell your story better than you. So a lot of times we don't get our stories told. The Star Tribune can tell one version of a story. But if you're investing in Black media as well, and also advertising Black media, that'll help the community as well. So as I say in, in the article, just do something. Don't just 
let Black History Month be like you posted, hey, happy Black History Month, and you talked about Carter G. Woodson or Martin Luther King or your favorite Black superhero, and then say, you know what, Ooh, it's the 29th, I'm done. No, keep doing something throughout the year and measure it, you know, measure it and maybe have a small group of folks say, you know what, let's keep each other accountable. What can we do together that we're going to say, hey, do you know any Black-owned restaurants? And it can translate to Native American. You're going to do the same thing for Native American History Month. You do the same thing for Latino Heritage Month. You do the same thing for Asian Heritage Month. And then it becomes, you know what, we're not going to do it for just that month. We're going to do it for the whole year, and we're going to change the way we look at things to intentionally invest in and partner with communities. So that's it in a nutshell, Luce. I, I just had a moment where I had to say, you know, just go do something and don't just sit there and celebrate a month. I appreciate that. I would add a couple more oh, sure. uh, books, books by uh, books that are uh, authored by uh, black folks, right? Yes, yes. Support the arts. You know, we've got Penumbra. We have other arts in uh, in Minnesota that are black mm-hmm. owned, black led. Yep. Um, there are nonprofits that you can be a donor to, you know, that are, again, black led, uh, like you said earlier, or volunteer. Uh Shows, you know, volunteers as, as an expert, you know, um, to mentor someone or volunteer to be part of the community. And guess what? You might uh, meet some new black folks, you know, in the process so that James Burrow isn't the only black person in your life. So you don't have to Amen. count. Right. <laughs> Amen. So uh, basically, you know, it is the, the practical things that we see applicable in the general population, uh, we should really adopt to and apply towards our our other, you know, our black, uh, indigenous and communities of color, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just, it, it doesn't take a whole lot. It just needs folks to kind of step out of their own sphere of, you know, mm-hmm. being um, less open. I'll just say, I, I won't say closed-minded. I'll just say part of their routines that are often, uh, not as expansive or as inclusive as it could be. Yes, you got to be intentional. I love the the uh, buying from Black authors. I love that volunteering at organizations. I love that. As long as you're intentionally doing something that's outside your comfort zone, uh, is very important. And sometimes when you mentor or or volunteer at an organization, you may be way outside your comfort zone. You may not know what to do, but if you come with a sense of culture humility, you can learn and then learn some more and then get more comfortable over a period of time uh, around that as well. Uh, I, I joke with people when I took the job years ago with Governor Dayton as the Chief Inclusion Officer for the state of Minnesota, uh, I didn't know as much as I wanted to about the uh, the Asian community, the Hmong community, the Cambodian community, all the different uh, ethnicities in that community. But what I did was I called uh, one of my Asian friends, Bo Tao, Otai Uribe, I said, Bo, I want to learn about the community. And she said, come on, I'm going to talk to you and, you know, we're going to hang out. And Luce, I'm going to put you on the spot. I did the same with you. I said, hey, Latino uh-huh. Lee, who, who I need to know? Let's talk about this as well. Because I can't by by any means know everybody and every, anybody. Uh, we we need to do better with the tribes and the state government, but at least they were there as representatives so I could talk to people there who were working with tribes. And that's how I learned. I mean, there's no magic potion to it. It's just taking time to get to know people and showing up in places and spaces where you can be received and, and learn in a humility standpoint as well. So I'm excited for this opportunity to, to tell my story and 
and talk to you. And I've had a great time uh, today as well. Hey, James, we just had, I sit on a committee here in Roseville putting together our Juneteenth celebration. Mm-hmm. And our we just had this same discussion about how is it that we can get people to be more intentional uh, beyond just Juneteenth, beyond just the day. So I'm gonna I'm gonna look up that uh, list you put together on on LinkedIn and bring that to our next meeting to to generate more ideas. But we we I'm I'm serious. In our last meeting yesterday, we had the same discussion on how we can. What do we have to do to get the word out to get people to be more intentional all year long beyond just the day, Juneteenth? Mm-hmm. So great, I'm gonna have to look up your list. Well, I just texted to Luce again. You can add the four <laughs> things that she just added to it and text it to you. And now we're real time problem solving. <laughs> all right. There you go. That's right. And we'll post it on our, our Facebook page as well. James, dear friend, so wonderful to have you and reconnect. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your talents, your time, and your gifts with us uh, today. I'm Luz Maria Frias, uh, enjoying life to its fullest and living life um, the way it is. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Malak Spanish Jubilee Indians and associate at Dendrils Group. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. And I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and partner at the Dendros Group. And James? James Burroughs, Children's Minnesota, Chief Equity Inclusion Officer. Thanks for allowing me to be on the show and sharing my story with you today. Uh, And I appreciate the opportunity to bring forth to the community uh, what we can do around racial equity and that we can continue to get better. Let's keep making sure that we keep doing the right thing and letting folks know we can get better if we keep investing in the future. Thanks, James. We'll see you next time. This has been Counter Stories. What's on your mind? Let us know and find us online at counterstories.com and on Facebook and Instagram. Counter Stories is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For a full conversation, please visit counterstories.com or wherever you get your podcasts.